0: This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in.
1: Hello listeners, welcome to episode 11 of Condopedia. This is a recording of our very first Condo Crunch, which occurred on April 8th, 2021. What is Condo Crunch? It is a monthly informative webinar where DHA lawyers provide their insight on current and hot topics in condominium law. The webinars take place during the lunch hour, and we aim to keep it between 30 and 45 minutes, given everyone's time constraints. Our next Condo Crunch is happening in May, so check out our blogs for all the relevant info. Of course, each Condo Crunch will be recorded, and you can find them as a podcast episode if you can't make a session. For our very first Condo Crunch, Jim Mohiminamo and I talk about the roles and responsibility of a condo board. Nancy acts as the moderator. Jim talks about decision-making, specifically what decisions require owner involvement. Mo talks about board considerations when dealing with enforcement issues, and I talk about when should boards consider bringing in an expert to help deal with an issue. In Jim's presentation, he makes references to some case law and a written document. You can find the links to those items that he mentions in the show notes. Enjoy!
2: Welcome, everyone, to our first-ever DHA Condo Crunch! Our numbers are still climbing, we have over 300 registrants today, Uh, so we're just going to give everybody hopefully a couple more minutes to register while I start off with an introduction. So this is our first ever Condo Crunch, where we recognize everybody has a time crunch, so you still have to eat lunch, so let's try and fit in some hot topics, some important information on what's going on in the industry. We're doing our best to try and keep these sessions to 30 to 45 minutes, depending on how hot our topic is or how much information we need to relay, we do have a, a lot of information that we're going to try and get through today. As many of you know, we also have our q and sessions, our q and with DHA that we do a couple of times a year. That's a different type of format. So we now have our two sessions. We have the Condo Crunch, which we're doing today, and our DHA q and The Condo Crunch is aimed at us delivering information as best we can on hot topics. And our q and is when it's your opportunity to throw questions our way, and we do our best to answer some of the questions from industry members. We hope you'll appreciate that today we're not able to get into uh, pure spec- fact-specific questions for condominiums and uh, fact scenarios. Uh, of course, what we're going to do though is hopefully answer some of the general questions that we did receive with respect to this topic over the past couple years as people were registering. We recognize that there's a lot of questions out there. We'll do our best to answer the most general ones that came up through our through the uh, registration process. For any specific questions that you might have after today, though, we encourage you to reach out to your legal counsel, whether it's a member of our team or another counsel, make sure you do get the necessary advice that you need to ensure that you're comfortable with any particular situations that you may be facing. So because this is a crunch, a condo crunch, and we're on a time crunch, we're going to get right into the issues today. We have three fantastic speakers. We have Jim, Mohiminal and David, and they're going to be talking to you today about directors' roles and responsibilities. Each of their bios is on our website, so we won't take up time talking about how amazing my co-workers are. Uh, we'll just jump right into it. So Jim, we're going to start with Jim telling us all about the general overview of what does a board member do? What do they have to do? What is their mandate? When do we involve owners? And of course, some very important liability tips for a board. Jim, over to you.
3: Yeah, thanks so much, Nance. Uh, Hello to everyone. And thanks so much for joining us here today. Um, I'm going to leave lead off, as Nancy said, uh, with some general comments about the mandate of condominium boards. And I'm also going to talk about some liability issues. So I'm going to start with the following brief statement. Most decisions in a condominium are made by the board. And this is because the corporation has certain basic responsibilities, and the board's obligation is to ensure that those responsibilities are fulfilled. Now, I think that the key sections of the Condominium Act that talk about the board's mandate are sections 27 and 37. So starting with section 27, it says a board of directors shall manage the affairs of the corporation. This means that a condominium's decisions are made by the board unless the governing documents say that the owners get involved. Section 37 says, among other things, the directors and officers must act honestly and in good faith and they must exercise the care, diligence, and skill of a reasonably prudent person. So this tells us that the board members must be honest and reasonable as they make their decisions. So that's the overall starting point. Now I'm going to turn to some of the corporation's key responsibilities. And starting with section 17 of the Condominium Act, among other things, it says the corporation has a duty to control manage and administer the common elements. The corporation also has a duty to take reasonable steps to enforce the act declaration bylaws and rules. And as stated in section 119 of the act, the corporation also has the duty to comply with the act declaration bylaws and rules. So this essentially means that the board has to make sure that everyone follows the governing documents. Section 26 of the Act says the corporation has the duty as occupier of the common elements to keep the common elements reasonably safe. Section 90 of the Act says the corporation has a duty to maintain the common elements, except any parts of the common elements that the declaration says are to be be maintained by the owners. But in most cases, most of the common elements are to be maintained by the corporation. Sections 93 to 95 of the act say that the corporation has a duty to establish and contribute to a reserve fund. And finally, section 99 of the act says the corporation has a duty to arrange insurance for the common elements and standard units. Of course, there are other duties as well, but to me, those are the key duties. And so here's how I would summarize these duties. In general, the corporation's mandate is to ensure that the common elements are safely maintained, or in other words, to keep things in good shape the way they are, and to ensure that the condominium corporation operates and the owners and residents behave in accordance with the corporation's governing documents, the act, declaration, bylaws, and rules. Now, when the act refers to a decision or an action by the corporation, this is referring to the board because in general, As I said before, the board manages the corporation's affairs. And this makes sense because the corporation's obligations are owed to each and every owner individually, not just to a majority of the owners. So the bottom line is that for most condominium business, the owners don't vote. And I often give the following example. Suppose you have a townhome condominium with 10 blocks of units, 10 units in each block, a total of 100 units. Suppose only one of the blocks has a defective roof structure, part of the common elements, and the roof must be replaced at a cost of a million dollars. Do you allow all owners to vote on whether or not to replace the roof? In other words, do you allow 90% of the owners the opportunity to vote no? And of course, you don't, because the board, the corporation, has the obligation. So in summary, the owners don't vote about the corporation's obligations. The corporation's obligations fall within the board's mandate. Now, before I continue, I wanted to add the following. When the board makes a decision, each board member has one vote, including the board member who is chairing the meeting. So in other words, the the board member who's chairing the meeting, usually the president, doesn't withhold their vote and only break a tie. They vote equal to all of the other board members, one vote on the motion. And this is important because board resolutions don't pass unless there is a majority of the voting board members in favor. And that includes all of the board members um, and without any board member withholding vote. So the next question is, when do the owners get involved in a decision? And and generally the owners only get involved when it comes to changes, but I'm gonna, this list that I'm gonna give you'll see refers to changes. Now here's the list of the business that in general requires owner involvement. So Ali, I'm gonna ask if you can put up that slide, um, share that slide for everyone. So I'm gonna run through this slide of the situations in which uh, owners get involved in decisions. So one obvious one is election of the board, the owners elect the board. So this, what I refer to as a change in the board, owners get involved. Next one, removal of board members by a majority vote. You can see the section of the act that I've referred to there, section 33. One of the things I wanted to say here was, note that a majority vote means more than half. And this is not necessarily the same as 51% and it's not necessarily the same as 50% plus one. So for instance, in a 199 199 unit condominium, 51% requires 102 yes votes, 50% plus one requires 101 yes votes, but a majority requires 100. Now. 80% 80% or 90% written consents are required for an amendment to the declaration. So that's another important situation where the owners are involved. Um, and again, we have another majority of vote required for passing a bylaw, again, that's another majority of a vote. As I mentioned above, you need a majority of all units voting in favor. Um, then we need an ordinary vote uh, may be required to pass a rule. And I wanted to point out here, there are in fact, two ways to pass a rule. One is by way of ordinary vote, and the second way is, many of you will be familiar, 30-day notice to the owners with an opportunity to requisition a meeting, and then if the owners, 15% of them, don't requisition a meeting, um, uh, the the rule becomes in effect at the end of the 30-day period, or if they do requisition a meeting, then you have an ordinary vote. Now, what's an ordinary vote? And we get that definition in Section 53 of the Act, uh, uh, and it's a majority of the votes cast, provided you have a quorum. So I take this example. Suppose you have a 100-unit condominium. Uh, You have quorum if you have 25 units represented in person or by proxy at the meeting. So suppose you have that quorum, then you call the vote on a motion. Um, You know, the motion is moved, seconded. Uh, Any discussion, now you call the vote. Uh, For instance, it could be a motion to pass a rule. And let's suppose the votes are two in favour. One opposed, and everyone else abstains. You don't usually see that in condominium, abstentions like that, but that's possible. Anyway, that's carried. Two in favour, one opposed, a majority of the votes cast. So then you don't have to worry, once you've got your quorum, you don't have to worry about the total votes or reaching a certain total of yes votes, as long as you get a majority of the votes cast. Next one I have on the list is two-thirds vote required to approve substantial changes. This is under section 97 of the Act. And again, I stress that we're talking about changes. This is when you see owners getting involved. Next one is, an ordinary vote may be required to approve non-substantial changes, and for non-substantial changes, um, and this is essentially changes that will cost, uh, where the cost of the change is estimated to be less than 10% of the corporation's annual budget, Um, the process is essentially the same process as passing a rule. So, uh, just as I described above, you know, if you ultimately do get to a vote, it's an ordinary vote, If if you do a vote. Um, But you've also got the 30-day notice process. Um, Next one, appointment or removal of the auditor, again, by ordinary vote. Um, And then some further notes that I've added here. Uh, Owners have the right to examine records of the corporation, subject to certain limits. You're all probably familiar, Section 55. Also, owners may raise any matter relevant to the affairs of the corporation for discussion at the AGM. And I I wanted to stress again, this is limited to matters that are relevant to the affairs of the corporation as a whole, which in my view generally does not include unique concerns of the particular owner. So in, for instance, when are you going to fix my door? So something like that, I think the AGM chair could say, look, we'll deal with that issue outside the meeting um, for an issue that is unique like that, not really relevant to the affairs of the corporation. Uh, Owners are also entitled to receive information certificates, uh, you know, periodic information, certificates, information updates, etc. And I wanted to add as well that owners are entitled to receive various other notices, including notices of meeting, notices of most court proceedings started by the condominium corporation, notices of planning applications in relation to neighboring properties, for instance, received by the corporation and many others. Uh, So again, owners have lots of involvement in the affairs of the corporation, but mostly in relation to changes. The board decides how to keep things maintained and how to comply with the governing documents. Of course, that doesn't mean that you don't keep owners informed about the board's decision making. Communication is almost always a great idea, but owners can be told, you know, the board is grappling with these issues. The board's going to make a decision. We're just keeping you informed. And that's always well, in many cases, that's a good idea, unless you're dealing with something private or confidential, where you have to worry about privacy. Um, Okay, so that's what I wanted to talk about, say about the board mandate, and now I'm going to move on and spend a few minutes talking about the liability of directors. In general, I would say that condominium directors have very low risk of personal liability for their decisions made as board members. And This uh, concept was actually nicely confirmed in a recent court case. In that case, the court said that the board members generally don't have personal liability for their decisions and actions taken in their role as board members. Now, the condominium corporation, of course, can have liability, but the board members personally don't have liability in general for what they do um, as board members. Uh, But... I'm going to say there are definitely some liability risks and i'm going to say in particular where the board member acts in bad faith or dishonestly i'll come back to this in a minute so there are definitely some liability risks personal liability uh, liability risks for directors so make sure here's some tips make sure that the condominium corporation has a properly worded bylaw provision for indemnification of the directors pursuant to Section 38 of the Act. To me, that's one of the most important protections for board members is you have to make sure that that indemnification provision is in your bylaws. Uh, Next, make sure the condominium corporation has D&O liability insurance, and according to Section 39, if reasonably available. So that's something you want to watch for. One of the best ways to, risk, uh, to limit risks of liability, both for the corporation and the directors and officers, is to follow the advice of an expert, as noted in Section 37 sub 3 of the Act. So when in doubt, don't hesitate to obtain expert advice. Otherwise, as board members, you may be sticking out your own necks. Uh, David's going to have more to say on this in a few minutes, a very important point. Next, as I alluded to just a few minutes ago, don't uh, be careful not to act in bad faith. That's when a director has real personal liability. And so that raises the question, what is bad faith? Well, to me, bad faith is making a decision out of your personal interest, rather than based on your sense of the best interests of the corporation. We have actually uh, a court decision on this point uh, in Ottawa, that deals that nicely describes when a board member is acting in bad faith. Um, as long as you are trying to make decisions out of concern for the best interests of the corporation as a whole, my view is you should be fine in terms of personal liability. You'll be entitled to be indemnified as well. You'll be um, entitled to any DO insurance that the corporation has, and probably based on uh, uh, court decisions. The condominium corporation is the only one that's going to be liable anyway, not you personally. Next one, consider hiring an independent contractor sometimes as a way to reduce risks of liability to third parties. And the reason is that absent a contractual obligation, absent uh, condominium corporation having a, a contractual obligation to the third party, the corporation is generally not responsible for negligence of a contractor so long as there was no reason to doubt the contractor's competence. So that's a a, a reason to consider an independent contractor. Note that many contractors must also provide a certificate of WSIB coverage, as you probably know. And in many cases, it may also be wise to insist that the contractor have liability insurance on reasonable terms. Finally, the last thing I wanted to say, condominium corporations with employees can also opt for WSIB registration and WSIB coverage for the employees. And that can reduce risks of a claim from an employee if the employee is injured on the job. So that's something condominium corporations can think about and and many do. So there you are, Uh, Nance, those were my comments and I'll pass it back to you.
2: Fantastic, Jim. Thank you. And that is a lot of information. And some of you may not have been able to write all that down quickly enough. But the good news is, if you did not get all the information you wanted from this session, stay tuned in uh, probably a week or two. Our podcast expert, David, will be uploading this session as one of our next podcasts. So do what you can to take your notes down today. But don't worry if you miss something, it will be one of our podcasts shortly. And on that note, we're going to turn over to Mohiminal. Mohiminal is going to talk to us a little bit about what the board's obligations are with respect to enforcement. Jim told us all the things that a board member has to do. Well, one of those includes making sure that people comply. So Mohiminal, over to you. How does a board tackle that difficult subject?
0: Thanks, Nancy. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. So um, as Nancy was saying, my topic is enforcement. So one of the questions that we get often in the course of our practice is, it's all good and well to have, you know, declaration, provisions of the Condominium Act, uh, the rules, the bylaws, the rules, but how do we actually enforce? Now, enforcement is a very broad topic. And what I'm going to try to do in this, in the course of this presentation is to give you a very broad overview of what are some of the avenues that are available to condominium corporations and by extension to boards when they're looking to enforce um either the Condominium Act or the provisions of their governing documents. Um, First, it's important to go back to the Act. So as Jim was saying, under Section 17.3 of the Act, a condominium corporation is required to take all reasonable steps to ensure that the owners and occupants of the units, the leases of the common elements, and the agents and employees of the the corporation complies with the requirements of the Condominium Act and the, uh, the governing document, So that's the declaration, the bylaws, and the rules. The key passage in that provision is all reasonable steps. The standard that a condominium corporation is expected to meet when they're looking to enforce is reasonability. It's not perfection. And I will elaborate on that a little bit later. In addition to that, um, Section 37.1 of the Act provides that a directors that are exercising uh, their duties of office are required to act honestly and in good faith, and they're also required to exercise the care diligence and skill that is to be expected of a reasonably prudent uh, person in, in comparable circumstances. So what are some of the avenues and some of the options that are available to corporations when they're looking to enforce? So the first type of um, option that we that we uh, consider is what we call self-help remedies. So in some cases a condominium corporation can simply go in themselves and try to remove or to reverse a violation or a non-compliance. So a very good example would be parking uh, violations. For instance if a an owner is parking outside of the designated parking space, oftentimes either the condominium corporation, property management or if this is being outsourced to an outside parking management company What they'll do is they will ticket the owner, or in certain cases, they will go ahead and tow the vehicle. Now, obviously, these kind of self-help remedies are not available in all circumstances. In some cases, you can't reverse the non-compliance in question, Um, and in those circumstances, condominium corporation should go ahead and seek assistance from outside sources. So, whether that's legal counsel, but also institutions and authorities such as the bylaw office, the police department, and so on. Um, There is also the argument that has been made previously that a condominium corporation cannot use self-help remedies without without first obtaining either a court order or submitting the dispute to mandatory mediation or arbitration. Now, in our view, we would tend to disagree with that, generally speaking. In our view, a condominium corporation can once again, depending on the circumstances, go ahead and exercise those self-help remedies. However, um, I would caution that, again, this needs to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis, depending on the nature of the dispute and the circumstances at issue. The other caution that I would like to add is, in some cases, you may have owners or residents who are violent uh, who or who may pose a threat to the safety and security of, of the employees of the corporation or the, the property management. Um, in those cases, we highly recommend that you do not try to employ um, self-help remedies and um, because the objective is always to try and avoid a physical con- uh, altercation or confrontation. Um, and in those cases, it would be best to go out and seek assistance from outside sources, including legal counsel. Now, okay, so what happens in the event when a corporation has employed self-help, uh, a self-help remedy, but the, uh, the, the issue has not been resolved, or if the non-compliance concerns multiple owners? So There are multiple steps to enforce compliance. Uh, We've narrowed it down and actually come up with a really fun acronym, which we call DACCIE. So D-A-C-C-I-E. So that is document, assess, or investigate, communicate, communicate again, involve legal counsel if required, and enforcement. So the first step, and this is a crucial step, it is to document. Condominium corporations must, must, must ensure that they have an effective complaint retention and document retention system and policy that is in place. This um, actually achieves two objectives. First of all, it allows the corporation to ensure that whenever an owner is coming to you with a complaint, it shows the owner that you're taking the complaint seriously. You're putting it down in writing and there is a paper trail. The second objective it accomplishes is if unfortunately the, the issue escalates and it goes on to the level where it needs to be litigated we as legal counsel will look to see the track record and the paper trail and we'll rely on that as support for our communication with the owner or um, if it goes further uh, with respect to um, when it goes to court and when it needs to be litigated. So the first step is to document. The second step is to assess. So once a complaint is received by the condominium corporation or by the board, the board has to assess the validity of the complaint. Now, this will often require them uh, require the board to go ahead and seek out further information from the owner. What's important to keep in mind here is condominium boards are required to take complaints seriously and it's much more efficient to be proactive from the get-go than you know to take treat it lightly and then realize later on that oh this should have been handled differently obviously hindsight is 2020 but we recommend being proactive from the start the third step, would be to go ahead and comply uh, to communicate with the non-compliant owner. So this is usually the first letter that is usually sent by property management. And it should at minimum outline the nature of the complaint, outline the provisions of the governing documents and the condominium act that are being breached. And in certain cases, uh, boards may also consider including um, an opportunity to speak with the non-compliant owner either with the meeting or um, now obviously with COVID uh, uh, virtually to try and arrive at a resolution. So this is a first communication. If the noncompliance continues, We would recommend to to keep this communication ongoing. It's very important for condominium corporations to be able to show to courts, if the matter goes to that level, that there has been transparency, there has been ongoing communication. Now, as Jim was mentioning, the communication can be limited, can limit itself to say that, you know, we are dealing with the issue, but it is important to keep constant communication. The next step is to involve legal counsel. Now, suppose that you've attempted everything; you've sent multiple communication to the non-compliant owner. Unfortunately, the non-compliance persists. This is when we come in, um, and we will be relying on again the documentation and the paper trail that has been assembled by the corporation in order to get in touch with the non-compliant owner. We would inform them um, about. The nature of the complaint and inform them of the legal consequences in the event that communication from legal counsel does not resolve the matter or the non compliance is continuing the final step is to enforce now at this stage. There is There are multiple avenues that are available to condominium corporations. Um, many of you may be aware of the Condominium Authority Tribunal or the CAT. There are certain types of disputes that are under the jurisdiction of the CAT. So disputes that concern um, animals or pets, disputes concerning parking, and disputes concerning requests for records would need to be submitted Um uh, to, to, the, to the condominium authority tribunal. At the same time, there is also a requirement under Section 132 of the Condominium Act to submit certain types of disputes to mandatory mediation or arbitration. So um, the kind of dispute I'm talking about, usually this refers to disagreements between, um, between an owner and a corporation with respect to a declaration, bylaw or rule. However, um, we do caution that when a dispute concerns a violation of the Condominium Act itself strictly, in those cases, in our view, the condominium would not have to submit it to mandatory mediation arbitration. We can go right to court. Um, And and, uh, as I was alluding, the other um, avenue that's available is a classic one, which is a a compliance application under Section 132 of the Act. So there are options available when it comes to enforcing. One question we've gotten is with respect to chargeback. So can a condominium corporation charge an owner back with respect to uh, the legal costs for a compliance letter or any further steps that are required? Now, the... The landscape concerning chargebacks have has been made particularly complex in recent times. This would be a topic for a whole another whole other discussion, and we will be addressing it in a future discussion. Um, if there is any specific issue that pertains to your condominium, uh, we would highly encourage you to get in touch with legal counsel so they can assess the specific uh, circumstances and the nature um, of your case. So. In order to illustrate what I've just said, I'd like to provide one example that kind of shows how a condominium corporation should go ahead and behave reasonably. Um, we've recently dealt with a case that concerns noise in a condominium. So, in this in this specific situation, we had a um, an owner who was reporting a what she called a humming sound inside her unit. Unfortunately, neither the owner nor the corporation were able to find the exact source of the noise, but the noise was ongoing. Um, however, the corporation in this case did not sit idly. They Here are some of the measures they took. They communicated constantly with the owner. They had property management and the superintendent go up, and other employees of the corporation go up to the unit on multiple occasions to investigate um, the, the source of the noise, they hired an expert, a sound expert to go ahead and, and, and provide their professional opinion. And they also allowed the owner the opportunity to hire their own sound expert um, in order to be able to locate the source of the noise. Now, unfortunately, this is a dispute that went on for many years and eventually had to be litigated in court. However, the key thing is the court also stated that uh, the corporation in this case had had behaved reasonably because it took all these proactive measures. So, if there are two things, um, I would like you to take away basically with respect to enforcement. Firstly, is a condominium corporation cannot wash its hands from the duty to investigate and address complaints. Complaints need to be taken seriously, and we highly suggest that you think about being proactive from the get go. The second point is that the standard for condominium corporations is always reasonableness, not perfection. Did the corporation behave reasonably with reasonable haste in the circumstances to address the complaints? Um, So that's it for my presentation. Thank you.
2: Fantastic, Mo. Thank you so much. And once again, we're going to go ahead and post Mo's case. Mo's case that he referenced up in the chat. So just give us a couple minutes, we'll get that case up there too. And I was just about to send a note to everybody as well that Jim's uh, fantastic chart that he talked about earlier was going to be turned into a blog. So stay tuned for a blog that contains all of those key points as well. We're trying to do our best to get you as much as we can in a short timeframe as possible. So we'll follow up with a couple of key things uh, either through our podcast or through our website. That brings us to our final key speaker today, uh, David Liu. David is going to talk to us about when do you need to get those experts involved? What do you need to do? When do you need to do it to make sure you don't face liability, just like Jim talked about early on. Uh, so, David, over to you.
1: Thank you, Nancy. So, my topic is one that I've recently seen come up in my work. We, we know that condominium corporations are nonprofit entities and that controlling costs are almost always at the forefront of the directors and really all of the owner's minds. What are some situations where the board should consider getting outside expertise or assistance? Now, some circumstances are fairly obvious, such as when a corporation needs to do a reserve fund study. Other circumstances, though, might be a bit tougher. For example, what if a condominium needs to do some some repair work, but the budget is limited? Or what about another situation where an owner complains about excessive noise but the condominium corporation's initial observations doesn't seem to yield anything substantive. These types of situations might require the brain of an expert to assist the board. Let's take the repair project as an example. Say the board decides to hire an engineer to review the work. The engineer provides a report saying that the work was done well, but then a year later, there's a major failure in the work done by the contractor. An owner has suffered massive damage to their unit and is now suing the director saying that they neglected their duties. Well in this case the board is protected because under section 37 sub 3 of the condo act a director is not liable for a breach of duty if the director in good faith relied upon a report or opinion of a lawyer public accountant engineer appraiser or any other person whose profession lends credibility to the report or opinion. In my view, that protection by itself justifies the expense of bringing in an expert in most situations. Well, let's take our second example about the noise. Say the corporation hired an expert who concluded that the noise is within normal parameters and that there's nothing else the corporation could do to reduce it any further the expert's opinion is unchallenged but the owner disagrees with it and still wants to start illegal action saying that the directors breached their duties well again sections 37 sub 3 would in my view provide protection of course there are other benefits of bringing in a consultant aside from the protection provided by section 37 sub 3 particularly in the context of a substantial repair or construction project yes There is an expense in having a consultant review the work being done on a repair or construction project, but that expense affords an amount of protection that can mean the difference between a project that is completed smoothly to a project that becomes grossly over budget. You want to avoid a situation where in the guise of saving money up front and not having a consultant review the work or the contract documents, the corporation ends up spending thousands, tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of dollars, because it turns out that the work being done by the contractor was so deficient, that the work needs to be redone, or the corporation overpaid the contractor for the work done. And now a subcontractor has shown up saying that they they weren't paid for their work. And then the corporation had to deal with all the difficulties arising from that. Of course, even if these issues come up, the quantum medium often has legal recourse to deal with, deal with the situation after the fact. But as we know with many things in life, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I think it is an objective fact that it is better to spend a certain amount of money in order to prevent difficulties rather than to incur unspecified amounts of costs, including legal costs, in dealing with an issue after the fact. So what are some factors to consider when a board is considering bringing in an outside expert? Below are just some items that I think the board should keep in mind when thinking about whether the situation justifies uh, an expert's opinion. One, what is the nature of the issue? An issue such as a hole in the drywall versus an issue such as a structural repair of the balcony necessitates a different level of response. The greater the complexity of the matter, particularly if the board doesn't know what to do, the greater the need for the board to have the assistance of a consultant. Number two, how much would this issue cost if the worst case scenario occurs? Take a repair job, for example. One of the worst case scenarios for any repair slash construction work is if the work has to be completely redone. Now, that might not be serious if the work is, say, repairing a hole in the drywall, but it could become extremely serious if, say, the corporate condominium has to do repairs all over again to some balconies. That worst case scenario analysis also works for disputes. For ex- Let's take the noise issue, for example, that I talked about earlier. In that case, the worst case scenario would be if the owner starts legal proceedings to say that the board breached their duties. Well, having an expert report such that substantiating the corporation's position will certainly be helpful in that aspect. The goal here is to prevent legal disputes before they happen by ensuring that the board makes decisions based on the good advice of experts that they hire for the specific project or issue. I think that this is a good type of investment and something that uh, a majority of the owners would be be, uh, appreciative of. Now, what if you have a board member who is an expert in the area at issue, and the idea arises that they might be able to provide an opinion? This is a bit more of a trickier point. There may be some cases where a board member providing the expert commentary makes sense. Generally speaking, however, you want to obtain that expert opinion from an external consultant. This is because, firstly, the board member might have professional obligations that's uh, attached to their profession that prevents them from providing this type of reporting. Secondly, if something does go wrong, The board might not be able to rely on the protection of section 37 sub three. And you also don't want the risk of possible personal liability on the part of that board member or on the board as a whole. So that's that's also something to keep in mind if that situation comes up as well. And uh, Nancy, that's everything from me. And we are at 1240.
2: Fantastic, David. Well, well done, presenters. I am really impressed. We got everything in within our... 1230 to 1245 timeline with just a couple of minutes for me to be able to wrap everything up. And I do uh, hope that everybody was able to see the various links and references that we put up in our chat for the cases. There's a copy of uh, a link to the Condo Act, a couple of blogs up there. We did have some other people throwing in a couple of um, specific questions and so we invite you to throw those questions at us the next time we have a registration opening for a DHA Q&A. To the extent that the questions are very fact-specific, we can sometimes try and t- turn them into general questions and at least give everybody a little bit of guidance on some of the general topics that you need to think about for those specific questions. Again, the podcast will be available shortly to everybody as soon as David is able to get that uploaded and make sure that we all sound okay on uh, online. And we look forward to seeing everybody very soon at our next DHA Condo Crunch. Now, what is the topic? Let me tell you how that's going to happen. You're shortly also going to receive a blog uh, and an e-blast with a variety of different topics. And if you want to help us control what our next topic is, you have to vote. You have to fill in a little survey. We're not going to ask you anything more than which your favorite topic is. And then stay tuned for a date and the topic for our next DHA Condo Crunch over lunch in early May. Thanks, everybody. And we wish everybody a fantastic day. Bye, all.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at Davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.